0: If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to this Psalm, Psalm 100. Uh, One question that we will always hear without question from a child, no matter what we ask them is, but why? Now, sometimes that's out of genuine curiosity, but oftentimes it's to our own frustration. But we're all guilty of this. Growing up, did we not ask the same question? But why? But why? But, and what was the response we often heard? Because I said so. We just had to take them at their word. But this is not what the psalmist does for us here in Psalm 100. See, over and over, the psalmist instructs us, commands us, calls us to come before God in joyful worship, singing and praise and service to God. And the psalmist wanting to help us doesn't just call us to worship. He doesn't just lay before us these instructions by anticipating the but why, he gives us good reasons. Because he understands, as Fred Sanders puts it, praise seeks underpinning. Worship seeks grounds, the foundation to stand on. What the psalm calls for us to do And the the commands it lays before us this morning, we do not have in our own resources and strength to do. And so the psalmist wanting to help us provides for us a firm foundation to stand on, a fuel for our praise by giving us a clear picture of who God is. Psalm 100 is going to show us that our knowledge of God is what fuels our worship of God. Our knowledge of God is what fuels our worship of God. So if you are at the psalm, I encourage you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Psalm 100, starting at verse one, says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Thank God for his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. As we turn now our attention to your written word, would you continue to reveal to us your word made flesh? Our desire is to see you, to see Christ clearly, that in beholding his beauty, that we would be stirred up rightly in our affections for you. You alone deserve praise and glory and thanksgiving, all of these things that the psalmist calls for. And so would you, by your spirit, Take the word this morning, plant it deep in us, and bear fruit in keeping with your word. You alone deserve it. Would my words fall aside, but would you, by your spirit, carry what you desire for your people to hear this morning into the, the hearts of your people? Do your work, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the psalmist, with absolutely no setup, right away, repeatedly, over and over, calls to us to come before God with joyful praise and service. Look again with me at verse one. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And then verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Did you notice how many different commands and pieces of instruction that the psalmist gives to us? Well, first, I'm gonna point them all out to us. In verse one, he tells us to make noise. Now, the psalmist here isn't talking about producing unpleasant sounds. No, rather, he's talking about the the deafening noise of a crowd like we heard when the Raptors won and there was the championship parade. What the psalmist is talking about is uninhibited excitement. Why? Because the Lord, the King of glory, is coming in. We have received him. Brothers and sisters, our worship just right away from the beginning, what the psalmist shows us and instructs us is that our worship is not to be characterized as quiet and restrained. No, rather, our worship is to be audible, it's to be loud, it's to be marked by excitement. Excitement. And an encouragement to you is that our church is doing a good job of this and we're growing in this. In the last couple months, uh, as I've been able to participate in leading worship and then just standing off to the sides when I'm not serving, you might often see me staring at you. Uh, I'm not actually looking at the front because I'm enjoying your singing. I love hearing your voices and our, and our church is doing a great job at this. The encouragement to you is this, don't give up in it. Keep pressing on. Because why? The Lord has made his dwelling with his people. As we gather together, the Lord, the King of glory, has come in. And as we sang, God is with us. And now he invites us then, like the psalmist calls us to, to sing loudly. Because what happens when we do? When we sing without reserve when we sing and give God the glory that he is due and it's it's reflected in our volume and our excitement, God uses that to serve our brothers and sisters. And I can testify that God has used you, your voices to serve me. It reminds me that the the same God who has worked in me is working in all of us and is reminding me of the truths of God's word. God uses our singing to one another to cause the truths of God's word, the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And as we do, as the psalmist says, make noise, the Lord can use that to stir the hearts of your brothers and sisters around you. So don't give up. What you are doing in singing serves those around you. Well, that's the first instruction. Look at the second instruction he gives us in verse two. Serve the Lord. Now this word serve in the Hebrew is not limited to a particular place or sphere of life. It's not limited to just church. It's not limited to just home. It's not limited to just public. It encompasses all of life. Well, Christian, what that means for us then is that there is no place, no gaps in our life that are not reserved for the worship of God. All of it is claimed by him as worthy for his worship. God is worthy of total worship everywhere that we are. All that we do, no matter where we are, we are to, as Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We serve the Lord then in everything that we do in all spheres of our life. We serve the Lord as we gather and we sing. We serve the Lord as we serve one another throughout the week. We serve the Lord as we faithfully work at our jobs. We serve the Lord as we change diapers and raise kids. We serve the Lord as we cook meals for our family. We serve the Lord as we mow the lawn. We serve the Lord as we read a good book. We serve the Lord when we enjoy the good gifts that he has given to us to his glory. All of our life then is countless opportunities to serve the Lord, as the psalmist calls us to. Thirdly, in verse two again, he tells us to come into his presence. And then in verse four, he uses the same verb and it's translated for us as enter his gates, his courts. See, the psalmist now is directing us to seek the face of our God. To seek communion with him. Now, friends, for us, unlike for the psalmist, for the Christian, God meets with men not in some temple in a particular city. No, God meets with man through his divine son, Jesus Christ. And through faith in that son, in the divine son, having been united to Christ by faith and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God communes with us. And he dwells in us, in each believer, but also in the gathered church, which is God's house. So the way we then commune with him, we do that daily as we pray, as we read God's word. But a primary way that we dwell and we commune with God is by coming into his house where he promises where he dwells. Now notice, in all of these instructions that he gives to us, The psalmist wants us to do all of these things in a particular way. He doesn't just issue us instructions. He gives us a particular attitude that should accompany those actions. Verse one, make a joyful noise. Verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with what? Singing. Verse four, enter his courts with? Thanksgiving. And his courts with? Praise. Our response to God is to be marked by joy. God is concerned not only by the efforts and the sounds of our mouths and our hands, but also the attitudes of our hearts. Christian, brother, and sister, this is what mature obedience looks like. Mature obedience. See, immature obedience is satisfied with just duty, but mature obedience goes beyond duty and moves into delight. It is action accompanied by affections. But if we are honest, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm not always in that place, If we're honest, most of us, we aren't always in this place where our hearts are always overflowing with affection so that we can accompany what we know to be good with a right attitude. So what do we do then? What do we do when when our affections aren't there and, and we see the commands of scripture to do what God has called us to do in coming before him in worship? What do we do then? Do we tell ourselves, just do it? Well, we could But like a spare tire, duty can only take us so far. Delight is what is designed to help us make it all the way home. So then what do we do when delight and affections are waning? Well, it's a good question, and it's what the psalmist assumes that we will ask. And he tells us the answer in verse 4. No. When our affections and our delight is waning... The answer is then no. Remember the big idea for this morning? Our knowledge of God is what fuels our worship of God. Our knowledge of God is what fuels our worship of God. Right theology is the fertile soil to produce right doxology. Truth for our heads should produce affections from our hearts. Now, friends, I wanna quickly give us a a quick word on the importance then of theology before we move on to what the psalmist then prescribes as our help, just a quick word on how important theology is. Now, theology isn't just for pastors or as Pastor Marv calls me, for nerds. See, everyone needs it. Like the sun and its light, theology and doxology go together. You can't have one without the other. But possession of one to the exclusion of the other is dangerous. As Shai Lin, a Christian hip-hop artist, puts it, theology without doxology is dead orthodoxy. And then doxology without theology is idolatry. So instead of pointing into errors on either side, press into the study of God's word. Because you can't love and worship a God that you don't know. But as you press into the knowledge of God's word, make sure that it serves its purpose in leading you to greater worship and love of God, your Savior. So the psalmist here wants to give us a theology lesson. Why? So it can lead us into praise, into joyful adoration and service of our God. And he gives us the first reason. Why should we do this? He anticipates it. But why, we ask, and the psalmist tells us. We should praise the Lord because he is God. We praise the Lord because he is God. Look at verse three. Know that the Lord... What does he want us to know? He is God. It is he who made us. We are his and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We praise the Lord because he is God. See, that word Lord, all caps, we we know that to be a translation of God's covenant name, Yahweh. See, verse three then could be translated as Yahweh is God. or or better translated, Yahweh is the God. What the psalmist is saying is Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh isn't one of many in this category or species that we can put people called God in. God isn't one of many in that bucket. God is the only one, the Lord, Yahweh is the only one who can rightfully claim the position and title of God. He alone is the one true God. There's none before him, as we sing. None above him, none before him. There's none before him, none after him, none greater than him. And this Lord, Yahweh, is the one who made us, as the psalmist goes on to say. Now, brothers and sisters, This reality that Yahweh, the true God alone has made us means a few things for us. Well, first it means that because God has made us, he alone has authority to set the limits and boundaries of our life. Because he made us, he gets to determine and define it. He defines when life starts. He defines how we use our money. He defines what gender is. He defines what we do with our time. He defines marriage. He defines the purpose of our lives. He defines and determines it all because he, Yahweh alone, is the one who made us. And as the footnote in your Bible should say, not we ourselves. God made us, not us. We don't get to define and determine it. So we honor him then by living how he tells us to. Well, second, because God made us, we are completely dependent upon him. As Paul says to the crowd in Athens in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as he needs anything. No, instead, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Because Yahweh alone made everything, he needs nothing. But because he made us, we need him. Our existence is contingent completely upon him. Thirdly, because God made us and because God made us in his image, This reality then impacts not only our relationship and our worship of God, but affects also our relationship with others inside and outside the church. Because we are made in the image of God, as our doctrinal statement puts it, all humanity is then worthy of honor, respect, protection from conception till death. Because we are made as the crowning work of his creation. Because God made us, we are precious and valuable in his sight. Our common origin then, having been created by God in his image, then destroys any grounds that anyone may have for hatred or discrimination. God made all of us in his image and he values all of us. Now the psalmist continues, not only are we made by him, we also belong to him. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The psalmist is making it clear, not only have we been made by him and completely dependent upon him, but we belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. God stakes his claim on everything that he has made. But look at the way that his claim on us is described as a shepherd over his sheep. God sustains and provides generously for all that he has made. Friends, whether you are a believer or not, there is nothing that we have that we did not receive from the generous hand of the divine shepherd. Even those who hate him, reject him and mock him continuously and generously receive from his hand good gifts. Yahweh loves indiscriminately and, and bountifully gives his grace, his common grace, to all. Think about it. Even those who hate him, reject him, mock him, receive good weather. They receive good food, the company, and the love of friends and family. They enjoy rest. They have possessions. God gives indiscriminately. Now his example should then inform us, should it not, of how we love our enemies? But friends, this is God's abundant generosity. The way as a shepherd, he cares for all that he has made is what makes sin so outrageous. We have rebelled against and rejected Yahweh, the true God, the one who has made us and the one who continues to provide for us and sustain us. And rather than receive him as a good shepherd, we like sheep have gone astray. But it's this outrageousness of sin then that what make, is what makes then the grace of God in Christ so amazing. See, Jesus, the good shepherd, by his work on the cross, makes us into new creation. He makes us again. He purchases us by his blood so that we might belong to him. He gathers us together into his fold, his sheep, his new people, the church, and then continues to care for us and watch over us and sustains us until we make it home. And for this, then, he is worthy of all our praise. Because, as the psalmist points out, we praise him not only because he is God, we praise the Lord because he is good. We praise the Lord because he is good. Look look with me at verse 5. For the Lord is what? Good, and his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. While verse 3 shows us God's sovereignty and authority, verse 5 shows us why we can delight in that sovereignty and authority. He is not like a mad king who abuses his power in all that he does. God is good, faithful, and loving. And all of it lasts forever. Brothers and sisters, unlike you and I, whose goodness, love, and faithfulness, like the waves wane in and out, like the wind changes directions and course throughout the day, God's goodness and love and faithfulness never changes. We have have no reason, we never have to fear that one day God will turn out to be evil or that he will be unjust or unreliable. See, it is God's unchanging nature and character that makes his authority and power good news for us as a people who are always changing. God's divine immutability is one of our faith's prized possessions. It is because God never changes in his essence, his perfections, purpose, and promises that we have hope as a people. See, we will falter and fail, but God never will in any of his promises. Our resolve is like bubbles of soap, but God is a rock and he never changes in his commitment to us. Our love often grows cold, but praise the Lord that his mercies and his compassions never fail because God does not change as it says in Malachi. We are not consumed. (laughs) Praise God. The Lord's immutability is the believer's comfort and hope that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Not just some of it. God does not change, and so we can trust in his promises to the very end. See, the psalmist wants to remind us that because God never changes, God in everything that he does will work in the fullness of goodness, love, and faithfulness to us, his people. Christian, God was this way for the psalmist. And because he does not change, this is good news. He is this way to us. Christ Jesus, in the ultimate display of goodness, love, and faithfulness, lays down his life. And do not be mistaken, this wasn't a sign of weakness, but rather of power, because he laid it down. No one could take his life from it. He used his power in a display of love, goodness, and faithfulness to us. And because of his work, not only can we enter his gates and enter his courts, we can, as Hebrews 10 says, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, praise the Lord." We can go all the way in with thanksgiving and praise. Why? Because the veil is torn, the gates are thrown open. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we are welcomed in not just to his outer courts, but into his very presence. As we sang, that we'll be able to see him face to face. The Lord's, Yahweh's unending and everlasting goodness, love and faithfulness, are the grounds for our our unending and everlasting praise. Because the Lord is God and the Lord is good, it's these truths that the psalmist wants us to know. Not just know intellectually, but an experiential kind of knowledge that we would know these truths in a daily life. Because as we know these truths in these ways, it will result in the praise that the psalmist calls for. Because the Lord alone is good and because the Lord alone is God, he is worthy to be praised, to be exalted. And not just by our lips. Look again at verse one. Make a joyful noise to the Lord who? All the earth. The Lord is worthy to be praised not just by the lips of those gathered here in this building, not only those throughout the church in history and the saints who have gone before, but all the earth. Friends, this sound doctrine, the good theology that the psalmist wants us to understand doesn't keep you in your seat. No, it stirs your affection, sets you on your feet with singing, and sends you out the door to your neighbor and to the nation's. And because the Lord is God and because the Lord is good, he will make sure that one day all the earth joins in the joy of praising him. He's told us how the story ends in Revelation chapter seven. He says this, it's John the apostle. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And where are they from? From every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And and listen to this, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Because the Lord alone is God and because the Lord alone is good, on that day, all the earth will make a joyful noise and we will see him face to face and it will be the, the, the joy of our lives to participate in that with our brothers and sisters from all the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't just simply instruct us and expect us to follow begrudgingly, but that you give us grounds for the instructions. And what better grounds do we have for our worship than that you alone, Yahweh, the King of glory, alone is God and that you alone are the the definition of good in all that you do. And so God, would you use those truths to stir our affections for you even now, that as we turn to our singing, as we stand to our feet, that you would receive the glory that you are due, because you are great and you've done great things and you've shown us your goodness in Christ Jesus. So would you receive the praise? Would you set us out on mission to our neighbors, to our neighbors, because you are worthy, not of of just the worship of our lips, but of all the earth. Would you receive that? We pray in Christ's name, amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.